So uh, a number of years ago, I, I kept waking up at like three in the morning, hearing this hum, sort of hum, and <clears throat> I couldn't figure out what it was. I there was a while when I thought it was coming from the DPW. Uh, out, out the window, I was looking, so I, for a couple nights, I would look out the window and survey the landscape at the DPW, trying to look for something that might be creating this hum, couldn't find anything. Uh, one time, I, I got up, I thought maybe it was coming from downstairs, so I went downstairs, and it got softer, I'm like, what is going on here, so came back up, and there it is, uh, loud, and, and so this was going on for a while, a couple nights. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And then one night, uh, apparently I was making a little too much noise investigating because uh, I woke my wife up. And she very sleepily goes, it's the ceiling fan. <laughs> and I look up and I'm like, right? and there is this hum, just this hum of the motor that <laughs> it's going all the time. It's always there. This hum is just always in the background in our room. Today we're finishing up a series, a three-week series called Go. It's a series that we began three weeks ago, and three weeks ago was seven weeks after Easter. And seven weeks after the original Easter, the Spirit of God came upon the early church in a unique and profound way and sent them out, sent them out on mission. And Jesus said this would happen a number of different places. In, at the end of Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He says, I'm sending you out to go and make disciples of all nations, to go out on mission, and, I'm, and, and elsewhere, he says, the Spirit will come upon you and send you out. And then that's what happened seven weeks after Easter. So, so for us, seven weeks after Easter, we kicked off this series sort of in celebration of that, in celebration of this calling for us to go out as ministers of the gospel, to go out and do discipleship and evangelism. And we've been looking at that the last three weeks. We, we've looked at what does this look like to do this at work? What does this look like to do this in the neighborhood? What does this look like, especially when we live in a, a culture that's fairly antagonistic to the whole idea of, you know, evangelizing or proselytizing or something, something along those lines. We, we live in a culture that, that for, for actually many understandable reasons, is resistant to this. I mean, you, you might be here today. You might, you might have struggle with that yourself. Either, either you're a believer and you struggle with the idea of, of, of the appropriateness of sharing your faith, or maybe you're here and you're not sure what you believe, and that's one of the things that bothers you about Christianity is this sense of kind of this proselytizing evangelism thing seems very out of step uh, with, with our culture today. And I tried in the first couple of messages to, to unpack that a little bit and explain why I don't think it's nearly as crazy as some people might think it is. There might just be some misconceptions on how it is to be carried out. But, but we looked at that and we looked at how you do this at work and how you do this in your neighborhood. And today we're finishing up by looking at how do we do this at home? How do we do this at home? Today's Father's Day, so it's not a coincidence. I actually planned ahead on this one. You'll be impressed to know. How do we, how do, we do this at home, and especially with our children? 
And, and that's what we see in this passage is, is we see this calling for us to, to pass on the things of God to our children, to impress them upon our children. It says here in verse, oh, where is it? Verse 7, impress them on your children. So to take the things of God, to take the faith and impress them on our children. And, and what I would want to say to you is, is simply this, that, that you, you, uh, you know, if you're here and you're, you're, you have young children, I would want to tell you this. Uh, you are, you have the greatest potential to be the, the best vehicle or the greatest obstacle to your child following and ultimately walking in the ways of the Lord. That as a parent, you, you have the greatest uh, opportunity uh, to be used as a vessel, and you're, you're also, there's also the possibility of being the greatest obstacle to your children coming to faith and walking in the Lord. Now, right at the outset, we've got to be clear that at the end of the day, whether or not a person chooses to follow the Lord is ultimately between them and God, right? So it's not, it's not like entirely up to the parents. There's, there's no way. I mean, there, you, you can be the greatest, the greatest family, greatest parents of all time, and, and, your, and your children may or may not follow the Lord. I, I know some, I'm like, how on earth did their kids become Christians? How did they even continue in the faith? You're like, how did that happen? Right? So, I mean, it can go either way. And, and so, in, in the end, this is not meant to be some sort of, you know, it's like you're this burden that you have to carry, except that to say that this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity that of, of any individual, of any individual that is most likely to be a vehicle or an obstacle, it's probably, it's probably you in the, life, in the life of your children. And so, we want to look at this and we, and we want to see, okay, well, how how do we do this? How do we disciple our children? And this is going to be obviously a sort of a big picture message. We're not going to get into specific details here. Uh, but we're, because actually sometimes when you get into too many specific details, you can end up creating a legalistic culture. So I sometimes shy away from that because too often it's like, well, this is the, this is the only way to do it or something like that. So I'm going to give you a bigger picture on, on how this operates. And we're going to start actually with this one basic question and that is, well, what is the goal in the first place? When we talk about evangelizing or discipling our children or whatever you want to call it, um, what, what is the goal? Like, what are we actually after? What do we consider a win or the ultimate win, right? So let's look at a few options here. Is the win, is the goal, do we feel like we've been successful if, if our children go to church when they get out of out of the house, and they're on their own, and they go to church, and they're faithful churchgoers, faithful church attenders. Is that, you know, is that, is that the goal? Um, well, I mean, I mean, certainly, that's a win. I would definitely see that as a win. Uh, that's part of it, but it's, it's so much more than that. It's much, it's much bigger than that. Um, how about this? Is, it, uh, is the goal to educate them, educate them with the truths of the Bible, uh, for them to, to know to know all the stories of the Bible and to know uh, you know everything to, to know you know be able to win sword drills you know like they, everybody knows where to they can win the sword drill and and uh, online Bible trivia I mean they can just like clean house you know Jeopardy if if there's like a category like oh my goodness I cannot believe it one of the categories is is minor prophets to start with the letter H Haggai Hosea Habakkuk. Right, I mean, is that the goal that, that, you know, we get our children that they could just clean house on, 
on Jeopardy, and they, they know where everything is in the Bible, and they know all the stories, and they can, well, yeah, yeah, that's certainly part of it. I think that we see that in here. That's, that's certainly part of it, but it's bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. How about this? Maybe it's, maybe it's that the goal is to get them uh, to, to obey. That's it, to get them to obey, right? To get them to, and, you know, and we, we certainly see this in here. So the answer is yes, that's, that's part of it. Get them to obey what God commands. So, you know, I mean, so that they, when they go to school and their friends do bad things, uh, then that's what in the, the children's Bible I'm reading to my kids, that's how they translate sin. It's bad things, right? So, so your kid goes to school and the kids around them are doing bad things and they say no. No, I'm not going to do that. That's a bad thing. The Bible says I shouldn't do that. Uh, is, is that what we're after? And yeah, yeah, that's definitely, clearly, I think that's part of what we're after is this idea of, of obedience to the commands of God. That, that's certainly it. But, but there's more to it than that. It's so much bigger than that. Maybe it's this. Maybe this is the goal. Maybe the goal is, is to get our children to believe the right thing. That's it, right? At the end of the day, that's what it is. We, as long, we want them to believe the right things. As long as they believe, you know, they believe uh, that the Bible is the Word of God, and they believe that, that Jesus is the Son of God, and He died for their sins, and that, and that he's gonna, He rose from the grave, and one day He'll renew and restore all things. You know, that, that they believe in the triune God, and, and they, they believe in the, the things that we unpack in our, our church doctrinal statement. We, we, just, we want them to believe the, the right things about the Bible and about the truth that's in the Bible, right? I mean, maybe, maybe that's the goal. Well, yeah. Yeah, certainly that's, that's part of it. But I, I think the picture we get here is something even bigger. All of that sort of fits in, but there's a bigger picture. And what is it? It's that our hope and our prayer and our goal is that our children would love God. Would love God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then it goes on and talks about the commandments. I give you these commandments and to obey these commandments. And, and so, yeah, that's there, but it flows out of this, this love for God. It's, it's love. It's about loving God. It's not just about believing in, in God. And, it, and, and the truth is we shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised by the idea that it's really about loving God. And I'll give you, well, there's a number of reasons for this. One reason I'll give you is this, because you are what you love. You are what you love. There's a book that I, I've read recently, which I highly recommend, called You Are What You Love. And I've referenced it a few times by James K.A. Smith. And it's, it's a great book because what it talks about is that at the most fundamental level, who we are as people, right? The anthropology, that's the fancy word. Anthropology, it, it, from an anthropological perspective, who we are as people most fundamentally is loving, love, we desire. And, and what we love and what we desire is the most fundamental characteristic of who we are. And what he argues is that, is that since the Enlightenment, 
since the Enlightenment, the Western world has operated really more under an anthropology that comes from Rene Descartes. So you guys might have heard of him, Descartes, and he's famous for his, his phrase, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. And so the idea is that the most fundamental characteristic of a human being is what they think. That's, that's who they are. It's what they think. It's their brain, like a brain on a stick. It's what, they, it's what they think. And because the modern world has basically followed that way of thinking, then what it means to shape somebody, what it means to, uh, well, to disciple somebody, is simply to change what they think. It's all about getting them to think the right things. And as we'll see, that's certainly a part of it. But what Smith gets at, and he's pointing back to what he's suggesting is we need to get back to, to really what the Bible teaches, what seems to be more central with the Bible, and that is that we are not fundamentally thinking creatures. Even deeper than that, we are, we are creatures that love and we desire. And so we either love God, or actually if you go on, we'll see this in a minute, you go on in this passage and it warns, they're warned about other gods, about not worshiping other gods. You see, it's, it's about what is your desire? What do you love? Do you love God or do you love something else? So fundamentally what we are is, is what we desire. And this is, this is why, for example, here's, here's the reality. Here's how we know that this is kind of true. Because isn't it true that oftentimes what you think, what you think you want to do and what you think you believe, you don't actually follow through on that? Right? I mean... So this is the classic passage in Romans 7 where Paul's like, well, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I do are the things that I hate. And what, what's really going on there is what he's basically showing is that, that he thinks he wants something. He thinks he wants to love God and honor God. That's what he thinks, but he doesn't, something deeper, something, you know, Smith is a philosopher, so he gets kind of he says, at a precognitive level, there is something else that is driving us that, that causes this conflict. Because if all you're doing is shaping what you think, it's not necessarily going to change what you desire and what you love and what you long for. So the question then, <laughs> the question then becomes, uh, how, do we, how do we disciple, how do we shape uh, people, how do we shape the way that they love how do we shape what they desire? And then the rest of it can kind of, kind of flow out of that. And I would suggest, I would suggest this, that we've got to think about discipleship and we've got to think of it a little bit less like putting information into a computer and more like marinating a chicken. We've got to think about it less like putting information into a computer and more like marinating a chicken, right? So if it's, if it's just, you know, because I think we tend to think of it kind of like you're, you're, you're putting information into a computer, right? And with a computer, you, you, either, you can put data in. I like this. I, I don't know. You computer people will know if I'm making any sense here or not. But you can put data into a computer, and now the computer knows lots of stuff. It's really smart. knows lots of stuff. Or you can... You can put commands in. You can do computer programming. You can put commands in, and then it'll do things. It obeys whatever your commands are, right? So this is two, and I think we kind of think about this the same way about people. Right? This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to either put data in or trying to give them commands so that they'll, 
obey. And I think that there's, and the reality is that sort of works. This is the point. I think that sort of works. And, and even, you know, in, in getting the commands, getting a person to get the commands, they, they might even be able to obey them as long as they have a certain level of self-control. You see, people with self-control can do a reasonably job of obeying God even if they don't really love him. They can do a reasonable job of this, right? So that, that, that kind of works, but you, and, and so this is all still part of it, right? It's not like we're throwing this out, but we've got re- to set it in a bigger and deeper context, and that is that what we're trying to do, what we're trying to do is less like putting information into a computer and more like marinating a chicken. And I want to highlight four things that I think kind of flow out of this. What does it look like? a discipleship approach that is more like marinating a chicken. And the first thing that I would say is this, that our, our discipleship uh, needs to be, it can't just be something that we do. Like within a family, within your family, we're talking about family here. It, it, can't, just, it can't just be something that we do as a family, you do as a family, as much as it needs to become simply a part of the family culture. It's simply a part of who you are. It's not even something you so much do as much as it has become simply your family culture. And here's what I mean by that. Let me put it this way, okay? Now, yeah, I'll just use this as kind of an example, okay? I would suggest this, that we're, we're, if, if as a family, okay? Now, if, have a fa- if as a family we have to ask the question, should we go to church today? then I would suggest that that's something we do. It's not a part of the family culture. I mean, if you even ask the question, should we go to church today? In other words, for, for, for people who, who this is part of their family culture and are trying to marinate the chicken, asking the question, should we go to church today, should sound about as strange as, should we go to sleep tonight? You don't even think about that. I mean, you might think, should we, I got to be up late. When do I got to get up? Every once in a while, every once in a while, actually, Rachel Kunker, God bless her. I wasn't even planning on saying this. She was like up in, in uh, New England last night, and she came back. She didn't even sleep to play in the worship band this morning. So I guess sometimes you don't sleep. Thank you, Rachel, for doing that. But in general, you don't even think about this, right? I mean, you just, you just go to sleep. I mean, you don't even ask that, should we go to sleep tonight? I mean, who even asks that? I, I would say that, that it's just, it becomes this part of our family culture. Now, now listen here, I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I'm not tooting my own horn because I have to be in church. You know this, right? I have to be here. But I'm going to use my own family as an example of this, that going to church has become a part of our family culture. Again, I can't toot my own horn. I have to be here, right? So I'm not trying to take credit for this. But, but here's, here's how I know it's become the level of, level of culture. If you ask my daughter, and it, she, she might get it right now, but like a while back, I remember, like if you asked her what the days of the week were, do you know what she would have told you? She would have said, oh, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, church day. That's what she calls Sunday. She calls it church day. In fact, if you told her, you know, that's actually Sunday, she'd probably be like, no, it's not. It's called church day. I mean, she just had no sense of anything other than the fact that it's church. It's just simply part of the culture. It's just, it's just something that she does almost, almost precognitively, almost without even thinking about it. In fact, in fact, there's a sense in which going through the motions isn't a bad thing. 
Did you know that, that going through the motions isn't necessarily a bad thing? I, I think we've come to think that it is, right? You know, that's like religious going through the motions. That's, that's not, you want, it's got to be authentic. It's got to be real, right? Here's what I would suggest. The, the, going through the motions is only a bad thing if you don't understand the gospel. Because here's why. This is why we've got to take a step back here, right? And we've got to, we've got to once again look at what, what is the Christian faith all about uh, and, and what, what is the story and even how does this passage fit into the story because this is going to help us to understand how it's not so much a matter of whether or not you're going through the motions. It's a question of why are you going through the motions, okay? And to get at that, we've got to once again look at how the gospel changes all of that. So we'll just go right from this passage. What's going on here? The, the, the Israelites have come out of slavery in Egypt. They've been given the Ten Commandments, and they've been told to obey them, right? Okay, here we go. And to love God, obviously. But, so the, but now what, what happens after this? What happens after this? Well, I'll tell you. Basically, you go through the rest of the Old Testament, and they don't obey God. Right? They don't. They don't. They basically, I mean, they do. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. But the general trajectory means that they don't obey God. And so then what happens? Well, the heart of the gospel is that God loves us so much that even, when we, even though we haven't obeyed, even though we don't obey, he comes for us. And he says, I love you, and I'm going to do what you are called to do. I'm going to live that life of perfect obedience for you. And I'm going to die for you because I love you and I forgive you. And I just want to be in relationship with you. And I want to empower you to begin to live this way. And so, so, so again, what is this all about? This is all about the fact that, what do I always say about when you come to church? We don't go to church to get God to love us. We go to church to get us to love God. You see, the problem... The problem isn't whether or not God loves us or not. That's not the problem. God loves us. That's the heart of the gospel. He loves us. The real problem is do we love God? And you see, if you get this backwards, and in, in, in mere religion, in sort of a religious kind of, you know, culture, what you can end up with is this, you kind of have this sense that going to church is what makes you right with God. So if I go to church, then I'm a good Christian. I got to go to church or God's going to not look upon me with favor. And if that's your attitude towards church, well, then you're going to likely go through the motions. You're just, okay, I got to go to church. And then it's like you, you go and you're just checking the box. Like if you go to work and you're, you're just going through the motions, maybe you don't even want to be at work, but you have to or you'll get fired. So you're just kind of going through the motions. And, and so if you think that your worth and your value comes from whether you go to church, then that's going to leading you to go, go through the motions, and then, of course, we're all like, wait a minute, no, you can't go through the motions. But listen, what if, what if going through the motions is not to get God to love you, it's to get you to love God? Right? You, you see, what if we have this, again, I think sometimes people will think, you know, I shouldn't sing this song. Because I don't, you know, I don't even know if I'm there. I, I'm just not going to sing it. I'd say no. You sing the song to get yourself to begin to believe it and to live it and to love it. I mean, if you think about it, with our children, we're trying to get our children to sing these songs. They don't really even know what it is. They're going through the motions. And we're having them go through the motions precisely so, hopefully, and again, this is where it's ultimately up to the Lord, but ultimately through that, it might become more than simply going through. 
this all, this is all coming back to this reality that you, you okay, so you, you go through the motions because it's just become a part of your, your culture. And if the gospel is at the center of your understanding of all this, then there's nothing wrong with this. And so now, uh, again, okay, this is going back to what is this first, this first point of discipleship, which disciples the heart, is that it can't just be something that we do. It's got to become a part of a fundamental dimension of our culture. Whether that's going to church or, or family devotions, right? One of the things when, when we get back, one of the things I feel like I want to help us to move forward with is helping to resource parents to be able to do family devotions in their, in their own home and so that we can work on that and create a culture. It's not just something we do. It just is who we are. Because when we create that kind of culture, now what are we doing? We're marinating. We're marinating our children in the reality of who God is and in the, in the truth of who God is. And, and that, that's the picture that comes here, right? You know, walk, wherever you are, walk along the road, tie the, put this on your door frames. I mean, it's just saying saturate, marinate your family in the things of God. So, so first of all, how do we do this? That, to the, now, secondly, and, and second one, the second one, I think, uh, kind, of, kind of flows out of it, uh, flows out of a little bit, and that is that, and that is that discipleship needs to be uh, a part of ev- the everyday stuff of life. In other words, discipleship isn't just the formal church or your, your formal set-aside time for devotions, but that we see discipleship as, as an everyday part of life. It's just something that you do. And again, this is what I think it's getting at when it says, you know, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. It's this idea that this is just something that you're always thinking about. And I would suggest that a key way of understanding this is that as parents, we want to look for those teachable moments. Those teachable moments that just occur all the time in life. I'll just give you one that happened recently. Uh, We had uh, a poor little chipmunk got hit by a car outside of our house on the road. And my daughter was kind of devastated by this. She's just at this age where she's starting to kind of wrestle with what is death and the finality of it and all of this. And so, so what do we do? I'll tell you what we did. We actually, uh, I took a shovel. We built a little grave out behind. It's buried out in the back of the church. We went and we, we scooped, up, uh, scooped up that chipmunk. And, and I'm not as cool as Paul Seibert. Some of you remember Paul Seibert actually picked up uh, an entire deer carcass and carried it off into the woods. I'm not that bold, but I did, I, did get, I did the chipmunk with a, with a shovel. I was feeling pretty good about myself. And so I, we, I, we dug this little grave, and I put the chipmunk in there, and, 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 you know, I just tried to keep it very simple, you know, somewhat vague, just like, look, we know that, you know, this is death, but we have a God who is much bigger than death, and Jesus died uh, to forgive us of our sin, and he's, one day he's going to renew and restore all things. And so, so death for us is not necessarily the same, or is not the end, and and so, you know, I mean, she didn't quite get it, but it was part of a, this sort of teachable moment, teachable moment, part of the everyday stuff of life. Uh, another crucial way I think we need to, and this is especially as children get older, especially as they get older, is that our teachable moments need to be helping our children to identify the idolatry that is pulling at their hearts in various different ways. In other words, we're not just telling them, well, this is bad, you shouldn't do this, you should do this, you shouldn't do this. We're helping them to understand the ways in which idols will pull their hearts 
even without them even thinking about it. And, and again, you, you find right after this passage in verse 14, it, it, what does it say? Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. So this idea of idolatry is already is, is clearly at the forefront of what this whole notion of discipling your children is about, is, is helping them to understand when, when their heart is being pulled towards something. And how this happens, this happens at a, at a precognitive level. It's, in other words, it's, it's not like you, the children are just hearing messages from people that go against the Bible. It's more like what you just kind of experience in the culture. I mean, a perfect example of this, and this is one which I think most Christians are at least aware of, whether or not we counter it very well is, is, may depend on, on each one of us, but, but we're at least aware of this, and this is the, the, the over-sexualization of our culture, right? Uh, that, in other words, if you, if you watch something on television, it's unlikely, I mean, they might say this, the, who knows, they might say this, it's unlikely, or most of the time, they're not going to say, you're not going to hear on television, oh, hey, you know, you should, sex isn't really that big of a deal. You have as much of it as you want. Whenever you like, it's really not that big of a deal. You're not going to hear them say that. It's just embedded in the storylines that are moving, that, you're, that we're watching. It's just, it's just in there. So it's not even like arguing with your mind. It's, it's pulling at you at almost a subconscious level, at a precognitive level. Level. And so I, I use the example of sex because that's one that I think we're a little more attuned to. But, but I, my suggestion is that there are probably a ton of other ones which we may not necessarily recognize. So let, let me give you an example. Uh, I, I think we tend to recognize sex in our movies and whatnot, but I'm not sure we always pick up on the materialism, the idol of materialism that flows through it. Uh, the, the TV show Sex in the City, I'm dating myself now a little bit, Right now, that's one where I think, as Christians, we we easily be like, "Oh, Sex in the City, all the sexual, you know," and, and we're right, right, exactly the sort of the way in which sex is treated a little more casually and this sort of thing, and maybe even maybe we'd even notice the clothing and be like, "Oh, Sarah Jessica Parker's skirt is, you know, it's too short and all this," and this is all good, right? We, we're picking up on that, but but did it ever cross our mind that? She could never have afforded that skirt with the job that she has in that show. Did that ever even cross your mind? I, I remember I read an article about this, about, about how she's like a journalist or something like that in the show. I can't remember. I didn't really watch it that much, to be honest with you. But the, uh, she's like a journalist in the show, and, and it's like the clothing that she has, she could never afford. And so, you, know, you don't talk about that, but that, these things just begin to pull at our hearts. And see, here's the thing. What we need to be able to do with our children is look, we can't remove our children from this world. We're not called to. We, we, all, we all go become Amish if we want to do that. We go that road. But we're not called to do that. We're called to be in, in the culture. And so what we need to be able to do, though, is to help our children to, to identify and to call out when this is happening. Because at least then you know, you at least you have some resistance because you know that it's happening. This is where we actually do need to use our minds. We need to use our minds to identify when idolatry is pulling at us at a level that isn't even in our minds. And so it's helping our, our children to be able to identify when, when that is happening. But again, this is all part of, of, of discipleship in the process of life, in the everyday stuff of life. So that's the... That's the second one, second way in which we disciple our, our children in a way that just sort of marinates them, marinates them in the things of God. Uh, the third thing, the third sort of way in which we sort of 
marinate is I would say this, is that we need to create a gospel-centered environment in our home, not simply teach them the gospel. So it's about creating a gospel-centered environment, not simply teaching them the gospel. In other words, we want to teach them the, the good news. We want to teach them creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We want to teach them that, that they might know that and understand that. But we also need to live out the story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, in our lives. And did you know that we're, we're, we're always living, we're living out different stories whether we realize it or not. Let me give you an example of this. Does conflict in your house follow the pattern of creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Or does it follow some other pattern? I mean, all conflict starts creation, fall. Right? Everything does. Starts out, everything's good, everybody's happy. Right? Everybody's doing great. Right? Then fall, somebody didn't do the dishes when they were supposed to last night. Right? Fall. Right? So then, so creation, then fall. Now the question is, in your house, how does the conflict go? Does it go creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or does it go creation, fall, nuclear annihilation? Does it go creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Or does it go creation, fall, sleep on the couch, separation? Does it go creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Or does it go creation, fall, slam the door and stone wall? Well, what's the environment? Creation, fall, redemption. What does it look like for redemption to take place in that moment? Well, redemption... What is the gospel all about is Jesus died for our sins. There's two two pieces to this. He died to forgive us of our sins, and we confess our sins. And redemption takes place in a home when the person who has been sinned against forgives, dies to themselves as Jesus died for them, that they, 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 they do what Jesus did, and they forgive, and they absorb the weight of that sin. And redemption takes place in that home when the, the person who offended confesses and humbles themselves, and it brings reconciliation and restoration. You see, living that out, creating that environment in your home is, I would say, even more important than actually teaching the gospel. Or you might say this. You might say this. There is a background hum in the life of every family. There's a hum. There's a hum like that fan in my bedroom that just always there in the background. You see, families have a hum about them. Have you ever thought about that? Have you analyzed what the hum is like of your family? Is it a chaotic hum? Is it a is it a hum of fear and anxiety? Just so this hum, this anxious hum that just is always going in the background? Is it, is it a hum of pride and a, a hum of performance and a, a hum of, a, a, you know, a, a hum of expectation, expectation, expectation? Is that the sort of hum that just kind of sits in the background? What's the hum like in your family? Every family has a hum. You know what, every, I think every church has a hum. 
this church has a hum. This church has a hum. And I love the hum that this church has. This church, when you come into this church, it has a hum. And it's a hum, and I, I, I pray you experience this. I certainly have experienced this throughout my years here. It's a warm, welcoming hum. It's a warm, loving, welcoming Now, maybe you don't always experience that. Maybe not everybody's experienced that. But when I talk with people who come, new people, that's almost always what they say. They come and say, there's just this hum. There's this warm, welcoming hum about this church. Now, why is that? Why is there that hum? Now, you you would maybe want to talk with some of the the longer-time members about that because the reality, I won't take credit for it. The hum was already here before I came. Uh, I'd like to. I'd like to think that I kind of stoked the fire of that hum, cranked it up a little bit, cranked the fan up a couple notches. I'd like to hope that I did, but that hum was already here, actually. And and I think that there are a, a lot of people who probably contributed to that hum. A lot of people who contributed to that hum. But if I were to single out one person who I believe really helped to generate that hum in this church, it's Alan Johnson. It's Alan Johnson. Alan Johnson, uh, basically, he's looking to sort of transition out of this role as the head usher of our church. He's been the head usher of our church for 2,500 years. Um, Before Jesus, Alan was our head usher. No, but in reality, it's like, how many decades is it, Alan? It's, I don't even know. It's decades, okay? I'm not even sure if I was born. (laughs) I mean, somewhere around there. And he's been the head usher. And, and what you know about Alan Johnson is that he has this hum about him. He has this warm, loving, welcoming hum about him. And he welcomes people with that whenever they come, whenever they come in. And, and here's, here's, here's the thing. I don't think Alan would, would claim to be the greatest teacher. I don't think he would claim that. In fact, if I asked him if he could fill in for me right now, he'd go into cardiac arrest. He would. I mean, I remember when we asked him to be the head trustee, the thing he was, mo- he was terrified, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it because twice a year he'd have to get up for three minutes and give a brief report. Okay, so I don't think Alan Johnson is going to be offended. He doesn't think of himself as one of the greatest teachers. He doesn't think that, right? But, but, but he has this hum about him. And you know what, friends? I don't think it is any sort of a coincidence at all that all three of Alan Johnson's adult children are walking with the Lord. I don't think it's a coincidence. As I said, it's never entirely up to the parents. There's, it's ultimately up to the sovereignty of God. But that hum, you see, we've got to create that hum. And so this leads to the fourth primary quality of, of what it means to marinate and how we do this. And, and that is that our discipleship has to be a natural extension of who we are. It simply has to flow out of who we are. That for our children to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, it has to flow from us loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. Because nobody can spot the phoniness like your children. If we want our children to, to really 
love God, it's, it's got to come from us. This discipleship has to be a natural extension of who we are. About 320 sermons ago, I preached my first sermon here at Rivervale Community Church. It was on June 20th, 2010, on Father's Day. And here we are, seven years later, Father's Day, and I'm preaching my last sermon before Laura and I go on sabbatical for two months. And, and I know there, so there have been some murmurings wondering, are you, are you going? Are you leaving? Are you going to come back? And we just want you to know we have every intention of coming back. There is no, I'm not looking at, I'm not like looking at churches. Believe me, that's not even on the, that's not even on the horizon. We, uh, we, in many ways, we feel like our ministry here is just beginning. So that, it, certainly, there's, there, that is not the intention. We just, let me kind of put it this way. John Maxwell says, you teach what you know. You reproduce who you are. You teach what you know, you reproduce who you are. And as I'm saying, this way, the way in which we enable our children to, to really come to know the, the Lord and to love Him, it comes less through what we teach, less through what we know, and more through who we are. And that is true of me as well. As a parent and as the pastor of this church, the most important thing is not even what I know or what I can teach, but who I am. And so what I see for these two months is, you might say in some respects, it's professional development. Because what you need more than anything for me is is a pastor whose love for God is strong, who has a heart, who loves God with all his heart, soul, and strength. And and, and I do. I love God. But I realize that, that there's work that God needs to do in me. And so that's my prayer. My prayer is that you would pray for me and you would pray for my family. That as we, we go away, I, have, I really have two goals uh, over the two months. And one is to really get closer with my family. And the second is to grow closer with God. I'm really excited about being able to spend some extended time just in prayer and, and studying the scriptures and, and not thinking about how it applies to ministry, but just seeking out the Lord myself. And, and, and my prayer is that, that maybe you would, you would see that and, and that you would, in your own way, find your own way to do that, in, in, in your own way. Maybe you can't take two months off to go do it, but you can find a way to do this because, friends, when, when we get back, it, it all our ability to, to go, our ability to go, and, and all that I'm saying here applies to our children, but it applies to anybody that we come into contact with, whether it's at work, whether it's in the neighborhood, or whether it's at home, it ultimately, it, it, it comes down to who. And it comes down to the reality of do, do we love God? And how deeply do we love God? And is that reflected in everything that we do? So I would just ask for you to, to pray for me. I would be praying for you uh, that we, we might become more and more who God has called us to be, that we might love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and that in that we might be able to re- reproduce that in his world. Will you pray with me? Dear God, well, we just praise you for your incredible love for us. God, that's the heart of the, of the gospel. 
that we are called to love you with our heart, soul, and strength because that's what you have done for us. God, I pray that you would begin to shape and mold us, that you would begin to pull us away, Lord, from the idols that lurk beneath the surface, that tug at our hearts in ways that our minds don't even recognize. God, I pray that you would help to pull those blinders off, that we might turn to you, that we might repent, that we might repent of our false gods and turn to you. God, you are our only hope. You are everything that that we need. God, we pray for your spirit to come upon this church, Lord. And in, in, in these months, Lord, these, these months, a, a time of, I think, self-reflection for all of us. A time for us to return to our first love. God, may you do a tremendous work in us over this summer. God, that when we come in the fall, we might be used by you to do a tremendous work in this community. We pray this in Jesus' name.